Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. When trying to imagine the lives of Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne on April 18th, 1943, I get a certain picture in my mind's eye. Four teenage schoolboys from Stourbridge in the British Midlands head off on an adventure into the woods, free from the encumbrances of adult supervision. I imagine something out of an Enid Blyton book, or perhaps a scene from Dennis Potter's Blue Remembered Hills. An image of kids just being kids. I want to imagine these four kids too preoccupied with schoolyard politics, games, pop culture and urban legend, kid stuff, to think much on the backdrop of a world war. The adults that weekend perhaps read the Luftwaffe bombed a church in Algiers, killing a group of nuns. Hitler ran into opposition from one of his own allies, Hungary's Miklos Horthy, refused to send 800,000 Hungarian Jews off to be killed in Nazi concentration camps. The Americans, acting on cracked Japanese codes, targeted a plane carrying Japan's admiral, Isoroka Yamamoto, above Bougainville Island, Papua New Guinea. They took revenge for his part in Pearl Harbor, shooting the admiral out of the sky. Truthfully, I don't know what occupied those kids' minds on April 18th, 1943. If they sang Bless Em All as they rode into the forest, maybe singing those other lyrics, the ones that will get me an adult rating on iTunes. For that matter, if those kids themselves had family serving abroad in the war, I do know the boys were on a covert mission to steal whatever bird's eggs they could from Viscount Cobham's ancestral land. Hagley Woods, and that the day would conclude far more like a Stephen King novel for the young lads. The boys searched high and low for birds' nests, till they came across the skeletal remains of an old elm tree. Bob Farmer clambered up and peered over the edge, only to find an old animal skull staring back up at him. Farmer picked the skull up, presumably to make his friends jump a little, but as he did, he noticed tufts of hair a human jawbone, and traces of human flesh still attached. In a mad panic, the boys ran for their bikes and took off for home. The gravity of their find had dawned on them, but as they frantically pedalled home, it also dawned on them that they were illegally poaching on the lord of the manor's land when they found the skull. A sound thrashing from angry parents was one thing, but would they risk a criminal record over the skull? I cannot say what else the boys may have been thinking, whether it felt to the boys like they'd just fallen into a gothic horror tale, a spy novel, or some crime procedural. But we do know the boys were all spooked from the experience. Before they split from one another, they made a pact not to disclose the grisly find to anyone else. But as anyone who's ever picked up Shakespeare might tell you, murder cannot be hid long. At length, the truth will out. Tom Willits, the youngest of the boys, had an especially hard time dealing with their discovery, and he told his father about the skull. 
They reported it to the Worcestershire police, who entered Hagley Woods the following day. Officers reached into the tree and found much more than a skull. A near-complete skeleton was laying inside the witch elm. A right hand was missing, apparently amputated. The hand bones would be found 13 paces away from the tree as the investigations continued. Taffeta cloth had been shoved a long way down her throat. Some scraps of clothing and shoes were also found, as was a rolled gold wedding ring, a thin strap of gold bonded or fused to the outside of a brass or a copper base. It was a cheap alternative to a solid gold ring. The remains were taken to a Professor James Webster, the local pathologist. The body was of a woman of between 35 and 40 years of age. She stood around five feet tall, had distinctively irregular lower teeth, including a tooth pulled a year before her death. She had given birth at least once before. The pathologist advised the body had been placed in the witch elm while still warm and was presumed to have died of asphyxiation from the cloth shoved down her throat. She would have been put in the tree sometime around October 1941. The police worked exhaustively to identify her. They identified her shoes, tracking down the shoemakers in Northampton and all but six owners of that particular model of shoe. Six pairs have been sold at a market stall in Dudley in the West Midlands. The stallholders there kept no records of buyers. They scoured through lists of missing persons but were still unable to make a match. The battle for Britain, where German planes had flown over British cities at night, bombing the hell out of the locals, had left no shortage of missing people. Most were presumed buried under the rubble somewhere, but none of those people matched the lady. Her irregular teeth were checked against dental records throughout the United Kingdom, and this too drew a blank. Now there was a single incident reported in the vicinity of Hagley Wood in late 1941 that seemed extremely promising. A businessman and a schoolteacher separately phoned the police to report a woman was screaming uncontrollably somewhere in the woods. Police were dispatched to the scene at the time, but they found nothing on arrival. Unsurprisingly, this lead was reopened, but that too led nowhere. Then, around Christmas 1943, several taunting notes appeared locally in the form of graffiti. They were written in chalk, all in a similar hand. The first one read, Who put Lua Bella down the witch elm? Soon after, Hagley Wood Bella appeared etched on a wall. And then finally the phrase, who put Bella in the witch elm? Police presumed the graffiti was always done at night, as they were never able to locate a single witness to the act. An inky darkness owing to the wartime blackouts no doubt helped the mystery tagger. They rechecked their missing persons list, looking specifically for a Lua Bella or a Bella. They investigated the kinds of people known for defacing walls and obelisks but could not get a break in this case. So who was Bella in the Witch Elm? Today I can only offer a handful of theories on the case, starting with Margaret Murray.
Margaret Murray was an Egyptologist and an archaeologist who taught at University College London from 1894 till 1935. Her career in active fieldwork was hampered, first by most fieldwork being given to her male counterparts, and then later by the First World War. So Murray diversified, becoming an expert folklorist, most notably writing a series of books on witchcraft. In 1945, she weighed in on the case, offering a possible explanation. Was Bella murdered by occultists? Was she in fact a witch herself? Her reasoning was twofold. The amputated hand in the tree. My following explanation of the former is a wee bit vague for its own good, but it will explain somewhat. Several groups of people had a funny thing with hands and thieves since at least as far back as the Mesopotamian lawmaker Hammurabi wrote his famous law code, with many punishments being like for like, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The lawmaker stated that if a thief took property with their hand, then their hand should be cut off as punishment. Hardly like for like, but you get the gist. This piece of ancient Talionic lore morphed over time into something wildly different throughout parts of medieval France, and from there spread throughout Europe. If you were to cut the left hand off a dying criminal as they twisted on the gallows, or if the criminal in question were a murderer, then whichever hand did the killing, you now had a hand of glory in your possession. The hand of glory once pickled was believed to have magic powers. If you yourself were a thief, the mere possession of the hand rendered sleeping occupants of a house in a deep trance. You could rifle through their prized possessions without fear that you might wake them up and end up on the gallows yourself. A hand of glory presented to an attacker could freeze them as they stood. It also protected the possessor from evil spirits. Treasure hunters believed a hand of glory could also lead them to buried treasure troves. That the hand had been cut off was a clue to Murray, but it was eventually discarded 13 paces from the body, suggested an occult link to the folklorist, as did the disposal of the body inside a tree. According to Murray, several pre-Christian European societies Believe burying dead criminals inside trees trapped their spirits inside the tree, preventing their ghosts from seeking revenge on the living. And her assertion was lent some weight by a murder in Lower Quinton, 40 miles southeast of Hagleywood, on Valentine's Day, 1945. Charles Walton, a local 74-year-old, was brutally murdered while out doing a day's agricultural work. While doing some groundskeeping, he was slashed and stabbed with his own scythe. As he lay on the grass, bleeding out from a cut throat, he was then pinned to the ground through the throat with his own pitchfork. Circumstantial evidence pointed towards his employer, Alfred Potter, being the killer, as Walton was said to have loaned Potter a sum of money he couldn't afford to repay. Others placed the blame on Italian prisoners of war kept locally. The Italians, having surrendered to the Allies in September 1943, their POWs were at ease to wander freely throughout the town in the daytime. In 1954, local papers reported on another similar killing, 
The murder in the town of Long Compton, 15 miles from Lower Quinton. This murder happened back in 1875. The victim was an octogenarian named Anne Tennant. Newspapers reported locals whispered behind Tennant's back that she was a witch. And she too was killed, ritualistically in this case, by being pinned to the ground with a pitchfork. Anne's killer was a man named James Haywood, a man variously described in the press of the time as simple-minded and a village idiot. Haywood was tried for murder and spent the rest of his life in an insane asylum. He claimed he was a witch hunter and would kill more witches if ever let out. So authorities threw away the key, leaving him there. The press largely underplayed Haywood's mental illness, and many wondered what secret groups of witch hunters Satanists, or witches themselves had lived amongst them for at least the past seven decades. And all of this fed back into Murray's witchcraft theory. It was hardly the only theory, however. Another possibility centres around a troubled young man named Jack Mossop and his enigmatic drinking buddy, a man known as Van Ralt. Jack Mossop was an engineer employed in making plane parts in a Banalane factory. In 1937, prior to the war, he'd taken flying lessons and was an air reserve. When asked by workmates why he was in a factory, rather than having aerial dogfights with Nazis, he claimed he'd crashed too many planes in RAF training and suffered from a traumatic brain injury. Now this is often presented in Bella Lore as fact often cited as an explanation for his subsequent behaviour. But there is no evidence he was ever even in the RAF, let alone invalidated out after a plane crash. It appears far more likely he had essential skills, so was unlikely to be called away to fight. It can neither be confirmed nor denied whether Mossop had ever crashed a plane while taking flying lessons. And certainly it would explain his subsequent descent. Mossop was a heavy drinker, who it appears followed in the loutish footsteps of his father and uncles, known to locals as the Seven Sods, for their rowdy behaviour. It must be said he wasn't brought up by his father, but by the parents of the Seven Sods. His mother died of the Spanish flu when he was six years old. He was subsequently brought up by his grandparents. Mossop was a bright child and often suffered from debilitating headaches and regular nightmares. As the war progressed, he grew increasingly distant from his wife Una. At 1am one morning, believed either in March or April 1941, Jack returned home to Una in a terrible state. He was accompanied by his drinking buddy, a Dutchman Una knew only as Van Ralt, Una suspected Van Ralt was a spy, as the man never worked, but he always had plenty of money. It has since been suggested he was a local rogue making his money by selling ration goods on the black market. On the night in question, both men came in terribly shaken by an incident which may have haunted Jack for the rest of his life. After settling his nerves with another drink, Jack told Una the following. The men had been drinking at the Littleton Arms, not far from Hagley Wood, 
with a woman he only referred to as that Dutch piece. At some point in the night, Van Ralt and the Dutch piece possibly got into an altercation. Jack states simply she got awkward. The three of them left the pub together. They piled into Van Ralt's rover, Jack in the driver's seat, Van Ralt and the Dutch piece in the back. Something never properly explained happened in the back seat, and the woman, I quote, passed out, slumping towards Jack. Van Ralt ordered Jack to drive out towards the woods. The two men got out of the rover, carrying the unconscious woman out to a hollowed-out oak tree in Hagley Wood. They placed her inside the tree. Or at least this was the story Una finally gave the police in 1953. Una was long separated from Jack at this point. Furthermore, Jack was deceased. He became an even heavier drinker after that night. His headaches and nightmares increased. He worked less, but if anything, his cash flow seemed to increase. Una was convinced Jack too was a spy. He became increasingly emotionally distant, violent, and moody. While Jack may well have been seeing other women before the incident with the Dutch piece, he was now increasingly turning to other women for comfort. Fed up Una had enough and left him in December 1941. After Una left, Jack Mossop's behaviour became noticeably erratic, and in June 1942 he was committed to a mental health facility. He died there in August 1942, aged 29. His coroner's report has been read by some to suggest that he was suffering from the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, punch-drunk boxers and professional wrestlers and American football players can often suffer from. My read, as a former investigator, who was often employed to find next-of-kins for deceased customers and, as a result, go through a lot of death certificates. I think his heavy drinking had badly damaged his heart. His kidneys were also shot. And more likely than not, I think he died of a stroke caused by the heart damage. But I am not a doctor. This tale was kept under wraps from the public at large, but leaked to the newspapers by a whistleblower in 1958. That leaker, Anna of Claverley, was Una. These articles told of a Nazi spy ring in the Midlands who were there to infiltrate the many arms factories dotted across the region. Bella was, according to their telling, a Nazi spy and an occultist known as Clara Bella. She'd parachuted in earlier in 1941, under the direction of a Nazi intelligence service known as the Abwehr. Abwehr Records released post-war state a woman, codenamed Clara, was parachuted into the West Midlands. But after she failed to make contact, they presumed her killed in action. Now, Clara was far from the only Nazi spy parachuted into the United Kingdom. Seventeen spies were caught entering the UK in 1941 alone. One worthy of discussion in this tale is Joseph Jacobs. Joseph Jacobs was 43 years old when he was captured in January 1941. Born in Luxembourg, he fought for Germany in the First World War. When World War II broke out, he was called up to fight, serving as an officer, until the Nazis discovered he'd spent four years in jail in Switzerland between the wars. 
the selling imitation gold is real. Surprisingly, Nazi Germany felt this made him unfit to lead men into battle. But this didn't make him ineligible for a job as a spy. On 31st January, Jacobs parachuted into Ramsey, Huntingdonshire. He landed badly, breaking his ankle. He was arrested the following day, hobbling along in his flying suit. He was carrying 500 pounds, a counterfeit ID, a radio transmitter, a photograph and a German sausage. He was caught after he fired his pistol into the air like a flare gun. The pain of his broken ankle had grown too much for him to bear. The home guard arrested him, then handed him over to MI5. Jacobs gave a voluntary statement to MI5. This included an explanation of a photograph of a woman he had on him, as the woman was not his wife. She was his lover, a German cabaret singer and actress named Clara Burl. Burl was also a spy, and according to Jacobs was due to jump somewhere over the West Midlands. She knew people there. Burl was a cabaret singer in the West Midland clubs in the 1930s. Jacobs was court-martialed as an enemy combatant and executed by firing squad on August 15, 1941. He was the last man to be executed at the Tower of London. So mystery solved, right? Bella was a German cabaret singer and actress, allegedly with occult leanings, parachuted in to sabotage weapons factories. Had she for some reason fallen out with her compatriots who then killed her? For decades, this was advanced as the likely scenario. Then this theory imploded in 2015. First off, a little tidbit, Clara was over six feet tall. And second, her death certificate was unearthed in Germany in 2015. Clara died on 16th of December 1942 in a Berlin hospital from barbiturate poisoning. So where does this leave us? Use of DNA with Australia's Somerton Man case. Well, that's impossible in this case, as Bella's remains went missing on an undisclosed point between her discovery and the advent of DNA testing. So currently there is one lead. Bella's skull was photographed, and those photos do still exist. In 2018, Carolyn Richardson, an artist who specialises in creating facial reconstructions of the long-deceased, created a portrait of Bella. It is always possible someone, somewhere, has a shoebox of old family photos. And while these are often treasured items to the children, such ephemera often gets donated to museums by the grandkids' generation. It is not inconceivable a photo may yet surface. Not out of a question, someone will recognise its significance when it does. But back to that graffiti. Who put Bella in the witch elm is a nice to know. And chances are we may never know. Who was Bella? Now that's a question I'd really like answered. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com 
You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.